0: Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. For those of you who were not here three weeks ago when I preached for the first time in this church, my name is Matthew Lawrence. Hello. I'm relatively new to Mill Valley. I moved here last August so that I could be within easy commuting distance my new job as a hospital chaplain in San Francisco. I moved here from Santa Rosa. I moved here from Santa Rosa, where I was rector for 12 years. I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, don't you know, in a beautiful neighborhood called Kenwood. Kenwood is kind of, you might say it's the Mill Valley of Minneapolis. And by that I mean it was, and it still is filled with wealthy healthy, well-educated, successful, seemingly happy professionals. The only real difference besides the weather was that the gorgeous homes in Kenwood are not nestled among hills and redwoods, but they're more on display, if you will, lining the lakes and the parkways of that city. And I grew up in one of those homes, and I grew up in Episcopalian In the church where I grew up, the biggest heresy you could commit was not to stand up in the middle of the church and announce that you no longer believed in the Nicene Creed. In fact, most of us would have been perfectly fine with that. Few of us had any idea what to make of the Nicene Creed, and that was okay. Now, the biggest heresy in my church was to admit that you had failed. Failure was such an unthinkable sin that we could not even talk about it. Success was what defined us. Success was what gave us entree into our world, to the tennis clubs and the private schools and the name-dropping cocktail parties. There was nothing more threatening or more frightening to us than failure, because failure meant exile. Failure meant you could no longer be among us. When I was an earnest young man, I was thinking about going into the priesthood, but I was bothered by the fact that I couldn't wrap my head around the Nicene Creed, specifically the resurrection of Jesus. I just couldn't get it. So I sought out this wise old priest, a priest. I didn't know him very well, but I heard him once tell a really funny joke. And I have great respect for people who can tell a good joke. So I figured he was very wise, and so I went to him. I said, I think I'm called to the priesthood, but I have to confess I'm having trouble believing in the resurrection." At the time, I did not understand his answer, but it stuck with me. Something I thought about for the rest of my life, it became something of a touchstone for me. He said, you don't believe in the resurrection yet because you haven't died yet. At the time, I thought, great, what, now I'm supposed to die? How am I supposed to be a priest if I'm going to die? I don't get it. Well, a few years later, I dropped out of seminary with a vow never to go back to Christianity or organized religion of any kind. I moved to Boston during the Great Recession of 1981. Remember that one? And I found myself in a strange city with a wonderful education and absolutely no marketable skills, and I was broke, I couldn't find a job. And I was on the verge of homelessness. And I entered into a very deep depression. In the words of our gospel this morning, I became very poor in spirit because my God had died. The God I had put my faith in, of course, was the God of success. This was the God of my forefathers and mothers. The God that told me that as long as I worked hard and I paid attention and I showed up and I applied my God-given gifts and talents, I would be rewarded just as my parents had been rewarded with a comfortable home and a meaningful job and a place at the table of mainstream American society. And none of that was coming true. Instead, I was headed down a road toward complete and abject failure. I don't know if you remember, this was during the early years of the Reagan administration, and you might remember how the streets in our major cities suddenly began filling up with homeless people. Suddenly we had a new despised class in our midst. These were the failures among us, and we did not want to look at them. They were strange and unkempt, and they smelled bad, and they frightened us. But for me, during this time, a transformation started to take place. These men and women on the streets became my brothers and sisters. They became the ones who would return my gaze while the rest of the world could not be bothered with me. They were the ones who knew the story of my failure and nonetheless welcomed me into their ranks. They were the ones who taught me about a new God, a God who comes to life after your false God dies. Which gets us finally to our gospel this morning. How is it possible that to be poor in spirit is to be blessed? What is so blessed great about being depressed? Last Thursday, I sat with a woman as she watched her husband of 57 years die in front of her. Her mourning, her grief was of a depth that would make you howl. It made her howl, in fact. That sound of lamentation that rose from her chest vibrated through the halls of that hospital. And it was a sound that no human being should ever want to hear. How is it possible that she is blessed? She who mourns. I have a friend who's one of the wealthiest men in Minnesota. And he's got Lou Gehrig's disease. He's on a slow and irreversible path toward complete paralysis and death. And his wife is lost to Alzheimer's. And one of his sons is mentally ill. As rich as he is, He is extremely poor in spirit. How in the world is he blessed? What planet was Jesus from to say that he's blessed? Well, let's step back for a moment to get some historical perspective. I was reading the other day, art historians tell us that something very interesting happened around the 5th century B.C., in ancient Greece. Up until that point, it was almost unheard of to find any art that portrayed human frailty and weakness in a sympathetic light. Instead, we find statues and pottery that exalt the gods and the humans who are victorious on the military field or on the athletic field. But then something began to change. One of the most wonderful examples of this is this beautiful bronze statue called the Wrestler. Instead of a young man in his prime, exulting in the glories of victory, this 5th century Greek statue is of an older man, seated, looking over his shoulder warily, He is a wrestler. His body is scarred, his nose is broken, and his body is bruised. We can see that he has been through many battles, and we can see that he is now losing more matches than he's winning. It was during this time that the great playwrights began writing tragedies. They began to explore the notion that the hero of the story might actually be a failure, In his tragedy, Philoctetes, we hear Sophocles put these words into the mouth of Heracles. He says, And first I will tell you of my misfortunes, of all that I suffered. And by going through those sufferings, I obtained deathless virtue, as you can see. And you know it well. You must endure this to create a glorious life from your pain. You must endure this to create a glorious life from your pain. This was a seminal turning point in the history of Western civilization. It was a moment when Westerners began to see failure with the eyes of compassion, It was the moment when Westerners began to find meaning in the second half of life. Where is our God when our bodies have failed us? Where is our God when we have been fired from our jobs? Where is our God when we find ourselves humbled, begging on the streets? When our hope is lost? When our success-worshipping friends have turned their backs on us? My friend, the wise old priest, was right. Before I could learn about the resurrection, I would have to learn about what it means to suffer and to die. The great Franciscan priest and writer, Richard Rohr, I hope you've read him, and if you haven't, I highly recommend him. He says that our lives don't really begin until we've had our great defeat. Sooner or later everyone has their great defeat whether it's a failure in our careers or the humiliations of a nursing home whether it's the death of a loved one or our own debilitating illness all of us one day will get to a point where all our glittering wit and our good looks and our social position all the money in the world can no longer save us from the weakness and the humiliation and death. Richard Rohr says that it's what happens after that that determines whether or not we will ever fully know the God of Jesus Christ. It's at those moments when we have nothing left between us and our suffering and our God, it's then when our false self finally has to die to make way for our true self. Our false self is the self that's always in control, the self that looks good when we go out in public, the self that is reflected nicely in our resumes, in our jobs, in our cars, in our stately homes. It's the self of ego and persona And in our world, it's a very effective self. It gets us very far. It can win us many comforts and many satisfactions. But sooner or later, we become the wrestler. And that false self comes to the end of its run. And then what? Who are we after we've lost our beauty? Who are we when we've lost our smarts, our status, our jobs? Where is our God then? That, Richard Rohr says, is when the God of the resurrection comes alive. Where was the God of Jesus? After his friends had betrayed him and he found himself hanging on a cross, dying, the object of contempt and ridicule. About this, Paul is very clear. A message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's what we're talking about here this morning. We're talking about nothing less than the power of God, which comes alive on the side of failure. For me, speaking as one who has failed more than most, and in some ways quite spectacularly, take it from me, I commend this wisdom to you. From the Buddhist perspective, it's a simple insight that true happiness is not found by avoiding contemplation of our suffering, but rather by becoming absolutely present to it. This is the beginning of wisdom, the wisdom of the cross. So we've run out of time, and as you might have guessed, I could talk about this for a few hours, which is good because Brother Richard has invited me to offer a class on this topic, which for me is all about what we call non-dual or contemplative Christianity. Richard and I have not quite worked out the details, but if this is a topic of interest to you, um, I ask that you keep your eyes peeled for an announcement about this class, which we will begin by reading together the wonderful book by Cynthia Bourgeau called The Wisdom Jesus. And if you haven't read it yet, I hope you will. In the meantime, I pray that as surely as our path is toward the cross, our path is toward the true power of God. I'm not talking about ideas. I'm not talking about beliefs. I'm talking about a power that vibrates within the deepest core of who you are. God who lives inside us in the place where there is no sickness and there is no death, only the glory and the power of God. Amen.